You're listening to the World of Higher Education podcast, Season 2, Episode 10. Hi, I'm Alex Usher, and this is the World of Higher Education podcast. Now, last week, I promised you we'd have Isaac Furman on to talk about post-Soviet higher education. But for technical reasons, we've had to delay that broadcast until next week. Instead, today, we're going to be taking a trip down memory lane to 1926 and a rather remarkable educational experiment that originated at New York University. It was called the Floating University. It was the brainchild of NYU's James Luff, a professor and educational reformer with an entrepreneurial spirit. His idea was to take several hundred students from across America and take them around the world on a steamer for eight months. While on board, they could study and learn as they did at home from knowledgeable teachers, but while on shore, well, they could really get to understand the world and become more genuine global citizens. Now, educational tourism was not unknown at the time, but what set this venture apart was the idea that a serious university would actually give credit for all these activities. It was such a sensation that the American press had stringers all around the world sending in stories about the ship's progression over eight months. Americans could follow the students' exploits in near real time through the press. With me today is Tamsin Peach, author of a new book on the floating university from the University of Chicago Press. Her book covers a number of facets of this story. The extraordinary journey itself to over 40 ports around the world, the students' curriculum and onshore activities, which included meeting an extraordinary number of world leaders, and the amazing shenanigans that went on between NYU and Luff that threatened to stop the voyage before it even began. It's a multifaceted story, concentrating to a significant extent on the politics of educational tourism. Which students got to take part? What parts of the world were they shown? And how were local issues framed? But for me, it's even more important as a story in the history of credentialing knowledge. The Floating University was a huge and genuine attempt to not just prize learning out of classrooms, but to widen the scope of activities that could be recognized as credit towards a degree. It failed, of course, partly because of the problems in organization and management on the trip itself, but more importantly, because it was steamrolled by the way the universities as institutions were becoming much more protective about their credentialing monopoly in the 1920s. But enough for me, let's hear from Tamsin. Tamsin, tell us, what was the idea behind the floating university and how did it come to fruition? Well, the floating university was the idea of a New York University professor called James Edwin Lowe, who was the professor of educational psychology there. And he had a background in psychology and he was interested in experience and how experience is very influenced by the ideas of William James and, and John Dewey at the end of the 19th century, pragmatism, really, American pragmatism. And he wanted to bring those notions into the university classroom. How can experience be the foundation for university credit? And he set up a series of courses at NYU in the period before the First World War in which courses in places like the Municipal Building in New York, Grand Central Station for engineers, and the big one was Wall Street, where he set up courses in commerce that were taught by professionals, by people working in the vocation, to students who then got university credit for those courses. The philosophy being that you can learn in place. You can learn in the environment in which work is being undertaken. And so after those immediately before and then after the Second World War, he thought, if we can do this in New York, why not travel abroad? So a series of courses he ran 
overseas to, to Europe in 1914, the very first study abroad courses uh, from America to, to Europe. And then he relaunched these after the Second World War. And again, in the 1920s, in a kind of era of internationalism, he thought, let's take students on a whole year around the world cruise for university credit. And we can teach them to be global citizens at sea by experience in the world and by meeting the people of the world, students, American students will learn to be world-minded. So you make an important point very early on in the book that the floating university comes along at the exact time that universities are starting to make certain claims of exclusivity for the delivery of expertise. And it's actually a pretty important point in the development of modernism, I would say. And, and the floating university is explicitly a project of experiential learning, which challenges that claim of exclusivity. So what's the politics of this inside a university? Why might the university, in a sense, challenge its own claims of exclusivity the way NYU was thinking of doing in the mid-1920s? It's a great question. And this is like what I found so fascinating about this voyage, that it lets us see this context of different ways of warranting knowledge, which I think has been completely buried in our histories of the 20th, across the 20th century, precisely because one side won. And so it was an interesting kind of, and as you say, this is precisely the moment where American universities and universities across the world are making claims to monopoly over knowledge. And some of these have been established in the period before the First World War, but places like NYU, second tier institutions are, are really getting on that bandwagon by the 1920s. However, NYU faced a series of financial crises in the period from 1900 onwards. And what Professor Lowe's experiential courses offered, and the big ones were in education, were like income. So in many ways, some of the courses Lowe offered uh, played a huge role in saving the financial bacon of the institution. And a lot of those courses will run through what was called the extramural division. And I really think the history of the extra of extramural studies in in, in this period is is there to be written by some enterprising uh, scholar. And by extramural studies, what universities meant were was credit, university credit that was offered beyond the walls, extramural, beyond the walls of the uni of the university. It was different than the extension division, which was uh, engagement, lectures to public audiences. This was university work that was done outside the institution, and it was a massive movement in this period. So I think on the one hand, you can see these ideas as separate, experience pulling in one direction, expertise pulling in the other. But it's also useful to think about how they dovetailed, because many of the courses that Professor Lowe is establishing in these workplaces of New York become a kind of um, like a, a settlement that then the university closes the walls around. So the commerce courses are an experiment. They're offering to a whole new set of students that come in, but pretty soon the walls go up and they, these, are now, these are now disciplines that the university exclusively offers. So it's a bit like a colonizing enterprise, a knowledge colony where they set up camp and then suddenly the camp becomes a settlement and soon enough, it's the university that's kicking out all those vocational teachers and arguing that it alone has authority over that domain. So the floating university is an NYU project. We're going to take students around the world and teach them things and they'll see things and learn things. And it's designed to issue NYU credit for what we would now call experiential learning. But the students who wanted to take part weren't exclusively or even for the most part from NYU, if I understand correctly. In fact, it was deliberately advertised right across the United States. So how would students 
1927, before the internet, before TV, how would students in those other places have come to learn about the floating university? And what would they have expected in terms of credit at graduation? Would they have taken for granted that if NYU issued the credits that their own institution would accept them? Yeah, exactly. Again, university credits. It sounds very technical, but it is, I think, the linchpin of understanding university authority in the 20th century, if not to make if that's not too big a claim. With the demise of the classical curriculum at the end of the 19th century, universities like Harvard begin by experimenting with the elective system. So students can pick subjects that they want to package together to make their degree rather than following a prescribed course. The difficulty with that is how do you know when students have done enough to equal a, a course? And so Harvard and other institutions invent this thing called university credit where a certain amount of time equals a certain number of points and a certain number of points equals enough to have a degree. Now, by around 1910, this has spread across the country and many institutions have adopted it as the kind of currency of academic learning. But Carnegie come in behind it and back it. And from that moment onwards, it becomes the official currency around the entire nation. And that means that students can transport those credits from one institution to the next. So by the time 1926 happens, students in undergraduate institutions across America know that if they get credit at one institution, their own university will acknowledge and accept that credit so they can transport it. So the way these students find out is through a combination of advertising in the newspapers, but also there's a lot of kind of connections, interlecturers and interprofessors and university principals and vice and chancellors and um, presidents who are then promoting the crews within their student body. So it really has the backing, not only of NYU, but also of several institutions across the United States. I have to say, though, there are some institutions who are skeptical of it. And they are mostly East Coast elite Ivy League institutions who say things like, our students are going to Europe anyway in the summer. We don't need a cruise. It's always impressive how prestige can play a role in these things, even back in 1927. So before casting off, though, NYU decided to sever its ties with Lowe and the floating university. Why did that happen? And what did that mean for the voyage? specifically with the notion of what credit, if any, students would receive? Because if it's not NYU, where's the credit coming from? Yeah, that's right. In looking through the university of New York University's minute books, <laughs> you see this contest playing out between, on the one hand, experience and all that Professor Lowe has offered the university, and on the other hand, this new desire for status and particularly to have authority over knowledge through, through expertise. And what kind of drives that initially is, a, is a, um, a scandal or a kind of sense that Professor Lowe, in organizing his study abroad trips, might have used a company of which he was the president to organize the uh, visas and all the rest of it. So the university was worried that there was this financial scandal at play in which Professor Lowe might have received some profit for an organization that the university was funding. Now, in the end, that was all exonerated. It did cause an investigation into who was doing the teaching on these travel abroad courses and the floating university, um, to who was offering, who was delivering the knowledge. And in the course of that, NYU realizes that it's not their professors that have <laughs> kind of a dispensing authority. It's all these people that work on Wall Street that don't carry the authority of the university. And, and it starts to really worry what how can people trust our credits if they're not being delivered by us? What 
where do where is our ownership lying? And, and this causes a kind of crisis at the university, and it leads to them completely abandoning the voyage and setting it on its own devices. And they withdraw quietly because they don't really want a scandal. They don't, they don't want bad press. But w- what this means for the floating university and Professor Lowe is that no longer is NYU offering credentials. Rather, it will be the student's home institution. So it will be up to the students to take their course guides, take their exam results and present them to their departments upon their return and say, please issue me credit on the basis of this work that I've done. Rather than just a simple process of transfer, it's the students that then have to make an application. Sounds like the early years of Erasmus, actually. That's the way that it was that it worked there. So tell us about the trip. What did the students see in an eight-month cruise around the world? Where did they go? What didn't they see? They left New York. They sailed west. They went to 42 countries, which included Japan and Shanghai and China and the Dutch East Indies and the Philippines, like American colony, up through Suez, after visiting India, all around Europe, Scandinavia, the UK, and then back across the Atlantic. And they met world leaders like Gandhi and Mussolini, Pope, King of Siam and the Queen of Spain. And, but they also um, undertook an official curriculum whilst they were on board. So this meant while the ship was at sea, the students enrolled in anywhere between three and six subjects. They sat exams as they sailed across the Pacific and they sat semester two exams as they sailed back home across the Atlantic. And uh, the idea with those courses was that it would be the experience that the students uh, gained whilst they were in the ports that would then be repurposed when they came back on voyage and inform the kind of next stage of the course. So this worked really well in some subjects. It worked less well in others where professors didn't really put the time in. In biology, for example, students visited the botanic gardens in every port that they got. They often collected specimens and they brought them back on board to analyse before they moved on to the next stop. There was also a program of kind of extracurricular activities and often the students were hosted by universities in the ports in which they stopped. So there were lectures and they met local students and and many of them also went AWOL, did not attend those events at port and instead made up their own program, which was probably far more educational. I love the stories about the students in the Imperial Hotel in, in Tokyo. I thought that would be very educational. But so listen, I understand how the learning takes place in the ports. You're actually seeing things. It's experiential. How does it work on board a, a heaving ship in heaving Pacific seas with limited library facilities? Like how much are they learning in the travel portions here? Well, I mean, they, yeah, it depends what you mean by learning. And it also depends what kind of subject you're talking about. I think uh, some of the courses like classics looked very much like that. They would in a kind of land-based institution, students are reading Ovid and it's not until they get to the ancient world that some of the experiential elements come into place. But, but for subjects like journalism, the students are running an onboard newspaper. So this gets published every day that the ship is at sea. The students not only edit that newspaper, they, don't, they write the articles and they also print it and distribute it. Uh, and it's an, actually an incredible resource to, to, to not to learn and know about what happens while the ship is at sea, which otherwise might be a little bit of a, a black box. Let's not pretend that experience is, is as integrated as it otherwise claimed to be. But, but I think there are some subjects that really embrace it and the design and the art course, for example, uses all aspects of the ship as a kind of laboratory in which students can observe, create, draw, make colour, line, 
and the rest of it. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. This podcast is brought to you by Higher Education Strategy Associates, a sector-specific consultancy based in Toronto, Canada. Among our many lines of work is program review and new program development. Looking to refresh some of your curricular options? Higher Education Strategy Associates can help with market research, evaluation of employer needs, competition analysis, and national and global reviews of curriculum trends by study field. Get in touch to find out how your institution can benefit. Email us at info at higheredstrategy.com. And we're back. Tessa, one of the things I found most striking about this trip, and you alluded to it just a few seconds ago, was the extent to which the cruise organizers managed to get meetings for these pretty typical undergraduate students with important world leaders. You named some of them, Gandhi, Mussolini, the Pope, the King of Siam. This is, it, it's, it's amazing when you was going through the, the list of that. I know higher education was rarer and more stratified and carried more prestige back then, but still, this is an undergraduate class. How did they manage all that? It is astonishing, isn't it? And the voyage leaders try and get the official sponsorship of the State Department before they leave, and they don't pull that off. But when they get to Hong Kong, they meet the United States ambassador and they meet the British governor of Hong Kong. And it's at that meeting that the American ambassador and one of his consuls is just seized by the idea behind the voyage. And he writes to all of his colleagues in the ports that the ship visit following. And it's that in combination with the personal connections of Henry Allen is on board the voyage as a sort of teacher and leading the journalism program. He is the governor of Kansas. And he, in the First World War, he played a really big role in the sort of relief efforts, reconstruction efforts in Europe in 1919. And it's through those connections that he has, he, through that work, that he has remarkable connections across the world, including with people like Mussolini. So the combination of that official advocacy on behalf of the State Department, even though the State Department back in Washington was not approving, but the consuls across the world were mobilised by their colleagues. And then Henry Allen that they managed to pull off these visits. And it's astonishing. It's astonishing that American, 21-year-old Americans were able to shake Mussolini's hand in 1927. Yeah. Look, I recognize um, this is an inevitably subjective judgment I'm going to ask you to make, but what do you think the educational impact of the trip was? As you said, a lot of students had a good time, but did they learn much? And did they get the credit? And was it accepted at their home universities? Not just did they learn, but did the learning count? Yeah, like what you've just listed are a series of different ways education can be measured. And some of them are in conflict with each other. And I think it's important to surface those and think explicitly about them. On the one hand, students, yes, most of them, 75% of them completed their exams. They got university credit. They did the, the it marks map onto a bell curve that is exactly like what you would see at a home institution. But the newspapers we're completely unconvinced that this equated to learning because if students are having fun and then we're alluding to some of the scandals that that um, beset the voyage and that were reported every day in the American newspapers, stories of drunkenness and skipping class and romance, sex, jazz and alcohol is really the kind of tagline for this trip in terms of the newspapers. And they thought, well, if students are having fun and going AWOL from their classes, then they can't be learning. That's not educational. So as far as they were concerned, they didn't learn anything. But then you ask the students, what, what did this voyage mean to you? And many of them say it was the most transformational experience of their entire life. 
the ship undertakes surveys of its of everybody on board and they all write back saying it's I'm so glad I went and and so with another way to think about that is to then trace the careers of those students across the course of their life what can we and make a connection between what they did later and the, the voyage and I think in many cases you absolutely can some students completely change the course of their careers and they enroll in international relations programs and they become professors in international relations. Others of them go into the tourism and travel industry or uh, get jobs in standard oil or newspapers through the very connections they made on board. And of course, there are others for whom it, it, it doesn't necessarily leave an obvious mark, but who go and do things like build gardens in the middle of Centralia, Missouri, which replicate the places they saw on the voyage. The lesson's a lesson. Tell me about how tell me about how the experiment was judged in the US at the time. It's clear that the floating university didn't herald a bright new dawn of experiential learning via travel. But I'm curious, how much of that was because the depression came along and more or less put paid to expensive educational luxuries? And how much of it was because the universities as institutions closed ranks and abandoned the idea of experiential education altogether. And, and how much, and if that happened, how much of that was because of this voyage? Yeah, I think the depression is, is like the nail in the coffin. But in the 1920s, 1927, 1928 and 1929, before the depression, the Wall Street crash hits, the leaders of the voyage are trying to relaunch this ship and run successive voyages. And it never gets up. And part of the reason it never gets up is because the universities have like explicitly stepped away from it. Professor Lowe gets sacked immediately upon his return from NYU. The State Department launches an investigation into this voyage and kind of concludes it's just a trumped up travel agency. And the universities are writing to each other. Some of them are supportive and add a kind of tear down from the president at the kind of level of lecturers and professors, there's a lot of clamor to teach on board these voyages. Why not? It's a great free trip around the world. But but at the executive level, they're really skeptical of what this means and the threat that it means to their credentials. And NYU, in fact, abandons its entire study abroad program on the basis of this floating university and the risks the educational, they, they describe them as educational, reputational and financial risks that it, they think it poses to their the business model that they're rolling out. Instead, what they do is they set up courses in international relations that uh, students will pay fees for. They'll get They'll be taught on campus about uh, world politics and their professors can consult to any number of institutions for additional funds as well. Interesting. So what do you think is the closest modern equivalent to the floating university? There's obviously some things which involve water, like semester at sea, but what about experiments like Minerva University, which explicitly try to bring people into different geographical domains each semester? Any, any other mod, does that, is that a good analogy or are there others? Yeah, I think actually I hadn't thought of Minerva, but that is a, that is a good example. I think the thing to think about with the floating university is that it did, it did aim to guide students around the world. It didn't just let them loose. They ran loose in port cities, but the enterprise itself didn't think that was the, like, where they would learn. So what they thought was that they would learn in the classrooms and then they'd be guided around a port city with a professor and that would provide experiential 
laboratory material, which then could be worked up. But all of it was under supervision, um, in theory. <laughs> and so I think in, in, in some senses, it's courses like NYU's or the American campus experience, which is actually a more fit analogy for what, for what the floating universities philosophy uh, or like um, actual organizational philosophy was what actually happened was that students went went loose and and conducted their own independent learning in the bars and in the port cities and get lost and rode bikes across Hawaii so what the analogy for that is I don't know it might be it'd be a travel I think most study abroad programs do have an element of oversight in them still interesting so uh, final question a large chunk of the rationale for international study, then as now, it's simply that travel broadens horizons. But the question, then and now, is how well these experiences line up with accreditable knowledge delivered through courses. And I guess more broadly, how easy is it to separate tourism for pleasure from exploration for knowledge? In the end, what's your assessment of how the floating university integrated tourism into education? And are there, are, are there lessons from this project that are still relevant to study abroad today? I mean, I think there is a fundamental tension between what universities, how universities claim authority over knowledge and how that is packaged up in their degree programs and the basis that you identified of study abroad, which says it's experience in the world that will be your educational guide. And there's a fundamental tension between those things because it will experience will always be a threat to to universities claim to have monopoly over what counts as knowledge and so what study abroad programs do is try and square that circle by having kind of forms of oversight or as long as credit is being offered for experience the university will want to be involved not only because there's a an educational question at stake who owns knowledge but there's also a reputational question at stake. What do our degree programs mean? Are our students giving us a bad name? What does that mean for our market share? I think this, the next question we need to ask is, what does our world need? How, do, how is trust in universities not to, to be secured? Is it only through the kind of insistence that it's universities that have control over knowledge and its expertise and the technocratic elements that flow from that determine who gets to ask the questions and who gets to come up with the answers? Or do we need to think more broadly about how experience and experiencing what a university is can be built into the ways our institutions work? Because if we don't do that, the gap between experience and expertise just widens. And I think we've seen in the last 10 years the consequences of that. And they're pretty dire politically, but also intellectually. And I think there are lots of interesting experiments that probably don't get enough airtime that are seeking to bring those things back together. Study abroad in some ways is one of, one of them, but more I have in mind the kinds of community engagement work in which universities open their campus, campuses up to people from the community to use services so that community members just have an understanding, an experiential understanding of what it's not, it's a place for them as well as for students that are paying lots of money. Damson, thanks you for joining us today.
And it just remains for me to thank our excellent producers, Tiffany McLennan and Sam Pusek. And of course, you, our listeners, for tuning in. If you have any comments or suggestions for future podcasts, please drop us a line at podcast at higheredstrategy.com. Join us next week when our guest really will be Isaac Fruman, head of the Observatory of Higher Education Innovation at Jacobs University in Bremen, Germany. We'll be talking about higher education research in the post-Soviet space. Bye for now. The World of Higher Education podcast is a Higher Education Strategy Associates production. Produced by Tiffany McLennan and Samantha Pufek. Hosted by Alex Usher. Music by T. Bless and the Professionals. Thanks for listening and be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app.